So Shantanu will start now. Yeah, sure, sir. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Welcome all for our second webinar in the series that we have called Indic Studies Webinar Series at Flame University. Today's uh, eminent speaker is all the way from New York, uh, and his title is "Where Quantum Physics and Indic Visions Overlap." His bio is really, really very long, but I'm just sharing a little bit from his long bio and his long list of accomplishments. He is the Emeritus Professor of Physics and Humanities at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He has lectured and written profusely on many aspects of Indian heritage and culture and authored numerous books, more than 300 book reviews, and scores of articles on science and religion. He's an active member of organizations de devoted to building understanding between science and the humanities. He has been elected senior fellow of the MetaNexus Institute and was the recipient of the Raja Rao Award, which honors and recognizes writers who have made an outstanding contribution to the literature of the South Asian diaspora. He has written a web column entitled Reflections on Remote Roots, which is widely circulated to people of Indian heritage in many parts of the world. So welcome, Professor Raman. And I know you from also for many years, uh, and I had the pleasure of interviewing you a couple of years back also. And uh, this topic has been very interesting, very you know, close to my heart and many, uh, many people across the world, how quantum physics and Asian or Indic spirituality, how they overlap and are there any similarities or, or not? And so Professor Raman, welcome. We are really grateful. Well, for thank you very much. Uh, uh, Professor Jain, and thank you for making me part of the Flame University's webinar series. Uh, it's, uh, and I want to reflect from my own perspectives on a topic that is of immense interest to many, many people, both within the scientific realm and beyond. To begin with, quantum mechanics, as we know, is a creation of our own times of the 20th century, actually. And it was a culmination of more than three centuries of what's usually called modern science. And its methods and framework are very different from earlier modes of grasping the phenomenal world. And therefore, one cannot talk of quantum mechanics and traditional religions when dealing with the formulas and findings of subatomic physics. Notions like the wave-particle duality, electron spin, quark model, and so on, have no, are not exactly implicit in ancient writings. However, quantum mechanics has wrought drastic changes in classical physics, or in the appraisal of classical physics of the world. It has changed our worldview. It has changed our notions of causality, determinism, our understanding of the nature of ultimate reality, and so on. And in this context, therefore, there are uncanny parallels between quantum mechanics and the insights of some ancient thinkers more generally. Now, it's worth recalling that almost all religious traditions have tried to see concordance 
between quantum mechanics and their traditions. There is a book called the Quran and Quantum Physics. That is one called Judaism, Physics and God, Quantum Christianity, Vedic Physics, Buddha, the first quantum physicist, and so on. It is good to bear in mind this broad framework in the world of ideas when we explore the, our subject from the Indic perspective. Now, as far as Hinduism is concerned, Hinduism did not go and search for quantum mechanics, but quantum mechanics was catapulted, as it were, into Hindu visions. Irving Schrodinger, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, said that the plurality we perceive is only an appearance. It is not real. Vedantic philosophy, where this is a fundamental dogma, sought to clarify it with analogies. Many faceted crystal showing hundreds of little pictures of what is in reality a single existence does not really multiply that object. So I want to emphasize that unlike in other traditions, here uh, the quantum physicists were the first, the active creators of quantum physicists were the first to point out these parallels. <clears throat> Indic thinkers form were the first in the history of philosophy to uh, recognize the centrality of consciousness. And here we have uh, Wigner, another great quantum physicist, saying that when the province of uh, physical theory was extended to encompass microscopic phenomena through the creation of quantum mechanics, the concept of consciousness came to the fore. It was not possible to formulate the laws of quantum mechanics in a fully consistent way without reference to consciousness. Now, <clears throat> others I want to cite, uh, after conversations about Indian philosophy, some of the ideas of quantum physics that had seemed crazy made much more sense. Werner Heisenberg said that, and even Niels Bohr once noted, I go to the Upanishads to ask questions. So it is, uh, I, uh, I want to make it clear uh, that I'm not trusting uh, Hindu thinking into quantum physics, but the creators of quantum physics have recognized this. And I want to explore that a little further from my own perspective. Now, uh, for, and, but in doing this, we have to be extremely careful because there are many who have gone overboard in this enterprise. And I want to point that out. In the microcosm, for example, as many of us know, entities are susceptible to perturbation even by a photon. A single photon used to locate an electron affects the position and momentum of the electron. And therefore, <clears throat> uncertainty is intrinsic in the measurement of quantum systems. In traditional perceptors, there is nothing like the physical state of microcosmic entities. Now, some have compared it, and here is a parallel <clears throat> with karma, saying that the karma principle states that the evolution of a person's lives is constantly affected 
determined by every act done. And the state of a system being affected by what happens to it is in the process of observation. And this is an interesting parallel, but it is important to recognize that karma is related to individual human lives, determinism is linked to atoms and molecules. Now, there is also the subject-object epistemology, which has been in classical physics a total separation, but quantum mechanics has revealed that there is no separation at the microscopic level, certainly, between observer and observed. And the demarcation between mute matter, of what one would call prakriti in, our, in the Hindu worldview, and the measuring mind, Purusha, dissolves into an undifferentiated totality at the core of physical reality, something that is uh, very, very new to what we call modern science. Now, no, until the 20th century, physics was based on what may be called naive realism, that the world is exactly as it appears to us through our senses. And a semi-idealistic view is forced upon us by quantum mechanics, which says that knowledge can arise only from the merger of the observer and the observed. This irreducible blending of subject and object drastically changes our worldview, the worldview of classical physics. Now, when we go back to the Indic system, this in India, by, as we all know, has many, many different philosophical systems. And the Sankhya system says that an infinite plurality of Purushas exist. It says also that the acts are caused by instruments. Knowledge is an act and therefore caused by an instrument which must be the senses. Therefore, it recognizes the inevitability of the role of the observer. And that is the key point in quantum physics. It stresses the relevance of the observer-observed interaction. Now, the another thesis or insight or finding of the Vedantic system is that that is an undifferentiated whole. That means that, and how did this happen? Again, from the point of view of current physics, uh, at one time, all the different fields, unified fields were a single one. And then there happened, something happened which split it into different fields, what we call the fields which mathematically one is trying to unify now in our own times. And uh, it could have well been that before the cosmic birth, the primordial oneness split into the knowing mind and the to-be-known objective world, a very similar kind of idea we find here. Now, one cannot uh, uh, avoid talking about quantum entanglement. And this is also very, very uh, new, meaning the past uh, 100 years. As you know, quantum mechanics began essentially 100 years ago. And uh, at our level, objects and entities are distinct. 
and they are mutually interacting through force fields. In the quantum world, there is a built-in interconnectedness among the micro entities which are binding them inextricably together. This is what one calls entanglement. If a photon, for instance, splits into two which move apart, then each of them is linked inexorably with the other through this phenomenon. And uh, their states are linked in a non-observed phase, as we said. Now, the notion of entanglement in the Hindu worldview has uh, slightly different. I call it metaphysical entanglement. And here, what one means is that in the corporeal manifestation, the Purusha is entangled with Prakriti, with the material dimension of the world. And the Advaita Vedantic school stresses the oneness of the world also and recognizes the ultimate unity behind the multiplicity. We need to recognize, though, the uh, one important difference between what may be called Eastern or Indic worldview or philosophy and the modern or Western uh, mode. And that is the entanglement of Purushas has consequences. It is the cause, as we say, of human suffering, which is a perennial theme, as we know, in, uh, in the Indic worldview. One stresses detachment for ending the sufferings. And here, uh, one must say that the philosophical systems in the Indic worldview, they are not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but they have an impact and a relevance to the lived experience. The separation of knowledge from human experience is a part of uh, Western, what one would call modern tradition. But in the Indic worldview, there is, these cannot be separated. You cannot have an idea in quantum mechanics which has no relevance or significance in lived life. And uh, when we say therefore, the, one of the Mahavakyas that uh, the Upanishads, uh, which we know, uh, that thou art thou, Schrodinger had this to say, inconceivable as it seems to ordinary person, uh, reason, you and all other conscious beings as such are all in all. Hence, this life of yours, which you are living, is not merely a piece of uh, the entire existence, but it is, in a sense, the whole. Only this whole is not so constituted that it can be surveyed in one single glance. A very, very beautiful way of recognizing the identity of ourselves with the cosmic whole. Now, I, I also want to caution against some hasty uh, generalizations. 
For instance, in quantum mechanics, many, as many of you may know, when you make a measurement, then the so-called eigenvalues come, and then you have, when that happens, only one dimension of reality is actualized. But at the same time, other eigenvalues are actualized, and that is how theoretically, conceptually, mathematically, we talk of different worlds, different, the many world interpretation, picture of quantum mechanics arises that. And the many worlds simply means uh, that these worlds can have no communication. You cannot uh, migrate from one to the other and so on. Some people have uh, uh, done something which I don't, I'm not comfortable with, uh, they refer to the Quranic vision of uh, different locas as uh, uh, between which you can't have communication, migration. They call that uh, an example of the many world thing. I personally am not uh, attracted to that idea. I think that is a superficial and unwarranted similarity with uh, quantum mechanics and ancient Hindu thought. We have to be very careful in understanding and appreciating these things. On the other hand, there is something called the M-theory. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, Ed Witten propounded it uh, some decades ago. And according to the M-theory, there are 10 to the power of 500 sets of laws. And we can conceptualize this in the language or mathematical formalism of quantum mechanics like this. If you you see, in quantum mechanics, what one says in the mathematical language, there is something called an operator, a mathematical operator. And it has what are called eigenfunctions and eigenvalues. And the physical world is actually the manifestation of the various eigenfunctions and eigenvalues. Now, if you imagine an operator called M, the M theory, of course, that M was used more for even Witten called it magical operator. But if you call this a Maya operator, M UK will be LKUK. That means that this operator has countless eigenfunctions, and each of these is a universe, and each eigen set of eigenvalues would be the set of universes. So that's a very interesting mathematical similarity between the M theory and the, uh, what we call the Hindu worldview. Uh, a very important idea in physics, as we all know, is uh, uh, causality. Every occurrence has one or more causes. And the dynamic aspect of the world is the evolution of phenomena due to the action of various causes. In fact, science is nothing but the, an effort to uncover the basic causes that govern the world of experience. And it enunciates these as the laws of nature. But when we consider causality and quantum mechanics, in with the discovery of radioactivity, causality had to be given up or certainly reformulated. 
Because if you take an a nuclear atomic nucleus, for instance, it has a sample has billions of nuclei, and some of these split up. That is a radioactive decay. Now, which particular nucleus will decay? No one can say. Uh, we cannot. We can calculate probabilistically how many in a sample will decay in a certain time, but normally there is no way of knowing which particular one will uh, decay. That is an interesting uh, situation here. Normally in the Indic tradition, unlike in the classical physical section, we have the every occurrence of three factors, kriya, which is action, the effect that means, and karana, which is the cause, that much we have in classical physics also, but there is something else called karta, which is an agent initiating action, which is common sense, one would say. For example, if you take a projectile motion, the orbit is the kriya, and the gravity and laws of motion are the karana. The, what has happened, namely the motion of the projectile, is due to gravity and the laws. But then there is a projector of the ball who is the karta, which is why not all balls, projectiles follow the same path, different, because there are different kartas. Now, I remember at this point, many years ago, six, more than six decades ago, uh, I suggested that the karta in quantum mechanics may, uh, has not been detected at that time, when I was doing my graduate work at the University of Paris, I was working on this thing called hidden variable theory of De Broglie and uh, others. I had a conversation with David Bohm at that time, I very clearly remember, and I was saying half uh, seriously uh, that the incompleteness in quantum mechanics arises from our lack of knowledge of the karta in microscopic processes. And uh, he smiled, he didn't take it seriously. He said, the, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I would be happy to explore it, but it, it has no relevance unless you can quantify it. And this is an important thing in physics. One can come up with any idea interesting uh, fascinating and so on. And it may be able to qualitatively describe things, but we need a quantitative expression of it in order for it to be accepted. So the Karta idea, however interesting, has not been quantitatively uh, formulated. I, my own feeling is that the so-called hidden variable, hidden variable theory on which they worked for a long time, which is not that successful now, but which has not, which is interesting for uh, in confronting certain philosophical problems that could be solved with this idea of karta. That means in the microscopic world, there is a karta. We know the planets are going in elliptical orbits, 
but we have no way of knowing what caused the initial projection of the planets. We say that it was by chance that matter accumulated in different uh, uh, concentrations forming different planets, and then they started moving. But there must have been an initial motion there, projection, and there we don't know what the karta of that is. So, or again, you take the notion of emergence, which is now very popular in modern uh, philosophy and philosophy of science. In the Samkhya system, we say that the effects are actualizations of what was implicit in the causes. Therefore, in the so-called Sadkarya, one considers cause-effect with an analogy of the Sesame Street, or one could say seed, or one could say that the tree is implicit in the seed. And this is what is called emergence in uh, current uh, philosophy of science. Some say, uh, we have all heard of the string theories, for example, uh, one can talk of the uh, variety of the physical world arises from the ultimate entities, the strings which vibrate incessantly. We read in the Mandukya Upanishad, for example, that the substratum of the universe is a vibration. The manifestation uh, is of that vibration is audible <coughs> in the sacred Om. All that is past, present, and future, all that exists is Om. And cosmic vibrations link the perceived and the unperceived or transcendent worlds. And this is interesting. I want to uh, consider two other topics here. You see, many of us have heard of the Anekantavada, the not one thesis, which is of Jain philosophers. And it simply says, that reality or everything has multiple facets and our reflection on any aspect of the world foc focuses on one or another of these. So whatever we say or find about one aspect of the world will be in the context of what you're focusing on, whether the elephant is like a rope or like a trunk of a tree, you see, will depend very much on what aspect of the elephant they're concentrating. And this is in a, an interesting sort of way, this is what quantum physics teaches us, that whether an electron is a wave or a particle will depend on the particular experiment that we perform. Likewise, we have the Shadwada thesis of the Jain thinkers, which says that uh, contradictory things may both be true in uh, depending on the uh, particular context. Truth must be spoken. Truth must be silent. Both are interesting perspectives on truth. They are what Niels Bohr called complementary aspects. And there are many things in quantum physics, many quantities, 
which are complementary. And that means the more you focus on one, the less the other becomes focused, you see. And many truths in, not just in the quantum world, but in everyday world are like that, you see. Is there one God? Are there many gods? Uh, depending on the perspective, one or the other may be true. And that is uh, the example of the complementarity. So I want to conclude with some very general uh, statements here, because uh, uh, the philosophical quagmire into which quantum mechanics has slid has turned topsy-turvy common sense pictures of a solid, substantial world of cause and law, of rigid particles and conserved quantities, of smooth flowing time and three-dimensional space. And as we delve deeper into the remote recesses of atoms and nuclei, Funny things begin to happen. Mathematical clouds of probability take over. Electrons seem to know. Information gets transmitted instantaneously. Everything is interconnected and a good many stranger things are taking place. In the depths of black holes and in the singularities of quarks, space, time, and uh, physical laws get warped and dissolved. Then one may wonder if those Indic visionaries and philosophers may have stumbled upon some truths about which, because of their very nature, one cannot be, which cannot be adequately expressed in words. So they were perhaps not far from the mark in insisting that in this stark denuded aspect, stripped of matter and mind, that is a level of reality that only pure consciousness can experience and pure consciousness can only experience, not convey through words. So could it be that at long last, after all these twists and turns of reason and experimentation of mathematics and microscopes, quantum physics began to get a glimmer of what those sage poets were talking about. Transcendental truths are somewhat like wave functions before collapse in the terminology of quantum physics. They exist in a different realm. Empirical truths, on the other hand, like wave functions after observation, can be grasped through logic and reason, and they can be measured and manipulated. So we come to this epistemic framework of the ancient of the Upanishads, namely that knowledge of reality is of two kinds what's called apara, which relates to the physical and temporal world, which is what physics is dealing with. 
which is what we are all dealing with every day, but physics in terms of trying to grasp and understand intellectually through logic and empiricism. And then there is the transcendental truth, the para-truth, and that relates to something beyond, which is a spiritual mode. Now, the way I see it, these are extremely great and <clears throat> profound insights. But what happened in the Indic tradition is that one underrated the apara aspect and I don't want to say overrated, but concentrated more on the para aspects. So all through Indic intellectual, spiritual history, we have been saying, forget about this apara aspect. Concentrate on the para aspect for your spiritual evolution. I'm not going to quarrel with that. That is one path one can take. But it seems to me that having recognized this, what would, what is good or what is uh, fruitful for lived experience, for cultures and traditions and for histories is to give equal importance to both these. To remember on the one hand, that there is a para aspect to the world of experience. But at the same time, the apara is not to be trivialized or looked down upon, which is what many great Hindu thinkers have done, which was appropriate perhaps for the handful of few who renounced the world and looked for the absolute and become and merge with the absolute, which is a path to take. But I am not sure that that is for everyone. And it is in the mistaken idea that one is more important than the other, that we somewhat last or lost the way. And that is, uh, a very personal view that I'm expressing here. And so I would like to conclude by simply saying, peace, Om Shanti. And uh, I will be happy now to uh, open it up for any discussions for anybody who would like to take. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Raman. Thank you very much. It was really enlightening and uh, you simplified some of the really complex topics so that non-physicists or non-specialists can also get some insights, get some counterparts of uh, physics on the one hand and Indic spirituality on the other hand. Have any questions from participants? Uh, the floor is open. Please, you can raise your hand like this and you can ask a question. The Q&A box is, uh, is raised, you can put your questions in the chat window or Q&A window, or you can just simply raise hand and ask a question.
Yeah, I've also yeah I've also enabled the chat window in case anyone uh, is more comfortable putting that question. Right. In there. I guess I'll start the ball rolling, as Professor Raman. I have a question. Yeah. How has been? I know that you have also worked with I think Templeton Foundation over the years, and how has yeah. your experience been taking these ideas to those who are not Indians, or those you know, those who are not Hindus? in America and so on. Yeah, well, uh, contrary to certain uh, general beliefs, in my experience, you know, the Templeton Foundation or the Metanexus Institute invited mm -hmm. me to give a series of lectures at the University of Pennsylvania, <clears throat> which uh, uh, were very well attended and very well, uh, uh, there were, uh, were lots of questions and interesting ideas, and they also uh, published these lectures in the form of a book called the Indic Visions in an Age mm -hmm. of Science. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, from the reviews I have read and from the people uh, I have interacted with, uh, by and mm -hmm. large, uh, the people are uh, very interested in knowing the uh, deeper elements of Indic thought, Indic mm. visions, which are definitely more profound uh, from any perspective uh, than the uh, normal, what I would call practiced religion at a certain mm. level, which is very meaningful and which is very important for mm. cultures societies, but that is also what may be called the metaphysical or the philosophical level of religions. And uh, India, uh, the Indic uh, perspectives have a lot to offer there. And the, uh, the intellectual or the academic people are very much interested in that. Uh, I have given courses here on uh, 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 Hinduism, Hindu philosophy, and the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Upanishads, and so on. Generally, uh, people are very uh, keen on understanding these, and they are uh, not, uh, they go beyond the standard questions related to Hinduism, which people ask uh, about uh, caste system. You see, uh, reincarnation, there are things like that. But uh, the, uh, by and large, the reflective academic kind of people are very much, uh, not to mention the practical aspect, as you well know, of the yoga practice, uh, which has become universal now. Uh, yes. And, uh, there are extremists, of course, religious extremists um, mm -hmm. who are against that, but yeah. uh, they are usually ignored or looked down upon because yoga as a practice is, uh, uh, it, it is a little like uh, the way I see it, it is like uh, electricity. Uh, you know, it is not confined to one particular country where it was mm -hmm. discovered first, you see. It is, uh, you, it belongs to all of humanity, you see. Right. And right. that, that is how 
it is my enlargement. There is a question. Yeah, thank you, Professor. Uh, there is a question by Professor Dr. Meera Chakravarti. Consciousness is said to be indefinable by the Upanishads. What do you think about it? That's the question. Well, uh, what more can one say? It is certainly uh, uh, there is a difference between indefinable and inscrutable. Uh, it is difficult to define consciousness except in a very uh, uh, simplistic way as self-awareness. Uh, self-awareness, uh, if you take that, then the question is not so much defining as trying to explain. As you know, there are two uh, schools of thought here. One is the diehard, uh, hard science approach. Uh, through neuroscience, one tries to understand consciousness. Uh, I, Roger Penrose, who got the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, talked of microtubules and all that. And there are ways that they have, they have not been completely satisfactory. Uh, and neuroscientists, are probing because that is the uh, what one would call the golden key to understanding the entire universe. And I don't, uh, I, science will not give up trying to understand through its own what may be called materialistic or uh, matter. By materials, we have to be clear about this. In science, there are four basic things, space-time, matter-energy, space-time, matter-energy, and superimposed are the laws of nature. Anything should be or can be understood in terms of these five things, space-time, matter-energy, and uh, uh, laws of nature. Mm -hmm. Can consciousness be understood within this framework? I do not know. All I can say is that scientists, quote unquote, thus far, are struggling. There's a whole school of scientists who are trying to understand that way. There are scientists who are trying to go beyond and who make consciousness as another fundamental element in the universe. And that is an equally valid position to take. It doesn't explain, but it does account for uh, many things. If you take, and uh, just the other day, I got a paper from someone uh, by the name of Lorna Green, and she has made this whole thesis that conscious, everything can be explained only in terms of consciousness. So there are people uh, who would say that, and this is a matter of uh, choice. Right Long now, bit, nobody, yeah. nobody has a full answer. Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, Dr. Chakravarti has further asked, uh, quantum mechanics describes everything as matter. I'm as much matter as a table before me. Indian wisdom talks about prakriti, which can be termed as matter. How interesting is the juxtaposition in purusha and prakriti? Well, quantum mechanics doesn't describe everything in terms of matter. It says, as I said earlier, matter energy, right? That is 
the universe has matter and energy. Energy is in the form of waves, if you want to say, uh, and matter is uh, the uh, concrete kind of stuff. Uh, so particles and waves, everything is in terms of particles and waves. Purusha mm Prakriti -hmm. is a different concept. There, the knower and the known, the subject and the object, right? Now, this bifurcation of the universe into a subject and an object is another great mystery, and I refer to it as uh, like the splitting of fields, the whole wholeness, uh, totality, somehow split into these two, subject, object. And that's what Purusha and Prakriti are, and uh, which is different from the quantum mechanical description of matter. Hmm. Any other question? If not, I will ask another question. Uh, Professor Raman, what do you think uh, is the uh, acceptability of that uh, one of the pioneering books on this topic, the Tao of Physics that I alluded to in the beginning of this webinar by Frijov Kepra? Well, that, that's a very, very thoughtful and reflective book. There are, uh, there are a couple of other books like that, you know, The mm -hmm. Dancing Wulu Masters is another. Uh, mm -hmm. These are uh, <clears throat> people who have, uh, who have reflected on the, the uncanny parallels between uh, uh, the deeper insights of quantum mechanics mm -hmm. and the uh, findings of modern physics. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say that there are people uh, die, mm -hmm. what I call die-hard physicists, people <laughs> yes. who cannot go beyond uh, the matter-energy approach, who find these uh, such uh, descriptions unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But David Bohm, for example, felt differently. He and there are others who think that for the fullness of life, mm -hmm. we need both. There is a reflective mm. aspect. You know, again, the ancient uh, Indic thinkers recognized mm. something enormously important, and that is that the channels of perception that we have, they ha have two very different functions. The channels of perception give us knowledge of the world around. Sight and sound and touch and taste and smell, they make us aware of the world. They give us knowledge. At the same time, they also give us experience. We enjoy beauty, we enjoy music, the fragrance of flowers, or the touch of silk. You see, the sweetness uh, of uh, uh, honey. The point is the same channels which give us information also give us experience. And the way I see it, the epistemic dimension of 
the senses leads to what we call a science and uh, philosophy mm -hmm. of reflections in that. Whereas the experiential one leads us to all the other things, love and beauty and uh, contemplation and uh, literature, poetry, all these things come from the experiential. Mm -hmm. To emphasize one at the expense of the other or to consider one to be more important than the other is a very grievous mistake in my view, if only because it underrates yeah, you see mm -hmm. one and overrates the other. You know, like in the Shadwada idea, mm. you know, it is not either this or that, right. but depending right. on the context, each one has its own relevance Everything, and importance. Yeah. Yes, 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 great, great. Any other question? I have one more, if not, but I would welcome if any question from the participant. You can also switch on your video and you can talk to Professor Raman directly. I don't have to be in the middle of you both. Uh, anybody would like to speak to Professor Raman directly by switching on your video, audio? All right, I'll ask one more question, Professor Raman. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you also reminded me by your explanations, there's another, seems like eternal debate going on between Richard Dawkins and Deepak Chopra. Any comment would you like to share? Richard Dawkins, I think, takes that matter perspective, Deepak Chopra consciousness perspective, and from speaking from a, I guess, non-specialist well, perspective. But yeah. Well, they are uh, very uh, interesting thinkers. Richard mm -hmm. uh, Dawkins, whom mm -hmm. I had the privilege of meeting, interacting with, he, of course, mm -hmm. belongs to the school <coughs> which is com which completely negates yes. anything that we would call uh, uh, right. non-physical. And right. with, from a biologist's point of view, he explains everything. Right. Uh, he looks at everything uh, from uh, that point of view. Right. Uh, I uh, see, I have often, also whom I have had the privilege of uh, listening to and talking to, uh, he, uh, on the other hand, to me, uh, emphasizes more the non-physical aspect mm -hmm. and uh, uh, traces everything to pure consciousness. Right. There's another uh, very eminent uh, thinker, Goswami, is also yes. like that. Yes, yes, and yes. very, these are very deep thinkers. Mm. And uh, I uh, personally, I mean, I've read their works and I uh, respect them, but I also uh, belong to, uh, I mean, I identify myself as someone who sees uh, what is uh, really good and acceptable in a perspective mm -hmm. uh, without adopting it completely. Because mm -hmm. I do think that a lot depends on what we are after. And mm -hmm. I do not think that any, and it's the same as the 
uh, either the Jaina principle mm. or the board's complementarity, I don't think there is a single uh, correct way of this. Mm. Because ultimately, it is uh, perspective that counts. Mm. Is, yeah. Because facts yeah. are what they seem to be, mm. truths are how they seem to me. Yeah. And that is the uh, yeah. main difference. Hmm. I guess I have still one more question. Uh, yeah, you touched upon uh, basically Upanishads and also Jain view of Yadvad and Anekantvad. Where do we fit, fit in Buddhism, which says there is nothing, there is no consciousness, there is no Brahman, there is no soul. And so, what's your thought on Buddhism and quantum physics? If you could also touch upon a little bit. Well, we have to. That's an altogether uh, yeah, it's a complicated uh, different uh, topic in a way. You see, because mm. Buddhism uh, concentrates, as you know, a lot on the mind and mindfulness, right. and the uh, the importance of the mind in creating and evaluating the universe mm -hmm. is uh, basically the thesis there. Uh, it is not so much <laughs> consciousness right. in, the, in the Hindu sense, but uh, uh, more in the sense of mindfulness and uh, the associated values, of course, it goes from there to uh, the ethical dimensions, as you know, right. uh, as in Jainism, of mm. compassion. You yes. see, the, it's more yeah. in the practical uh, thing that it go. But mm. uh, or uh, the idea of sunyata, of course, mm. <clears throat> is uh, uh, another one, uh, if one wants to talk, of every manifestation being uh, uh, an embodiment or a temporal embodiment of emptiness. You see, mm -hmm. uh, as we know, the complete uh, void is, uh, you, you can consider positive and negative. In, in a, uh, physically, in the physical world, there are as many positive charges as there are negative charges, and therefore the totality of electric charges is zero, net is zero. Yeah. So they balance, and the zeroness itself, the void splitting into two components is and creates the so-called physical world. So that, that's uh, the other way of looking at it. Yeah. Interesting. Thank um, you. Professor Jain, the, uh, there's yes. something in the audience who had raised their hand. Sure, and, uh, please, please, please. So please, yes, please. Uh, I'll be promoting them to panelists so that they can turn their video on and speak directly. Yes, yes please. Yeah, I request them. Sharada Sugir Saraja. Sharada ji, yes. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Sharada ji, you can go ahead. You can unmute yourself and turn on your video and uh, ask your question, I think. Shardaji, please unmute yourself and ask your question. 
Thank you so much for this very awe-inspiring lecture. Um, I just, just a question about um, consciousness. Uh, Sri Arbindo talks about supramental consciousness. Uh, where does that fit in with quantum physics or because uh, he goes beyond the positive and the negative attributes. Hello? Yes, yes. Yeah. Sri yeah. Arbindo go, yes. goes beyond, uh, he says, uh, the Supreme is both um, Nirguna and Saguna and goes beyond the two, uh, where Shankara talks about Brahman uh, being Nirguna and he doesn't go beyond the Nirguna, but Sri Arbindo encompasses the two attributes, both positive and negative, and says the Supreme is beyond the two. So I'm just wondering, I don't know much about physics, okay? My knowledge is zero. So I'm just wondering, where does this fit in with quantum physics, Arbindo's understanding of consciousness or experience of it? Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I didn't get the last question. She um, uh, Arbindo's uh, perception and experience of uh, supramental Con consciousness. Uh, where does this fit in with uh, quantum physics? Or how do we explain it in terms of quantum physics, maybe, if that sounds better? Oh. Well, as you said earlier, consciousness uh, has not been thus far, mm -hmm. as far as I know, explained. Explaining consciousness is the greatest challenge for both, for certainly for physics, certainly for science. Mm -hmm. In scientific terms, consciousness has not been explained. Uh -huh. But in a metaphysical sense, consciousness has been described and uh, its relevance uh, or its uh, modes have been described like the uh, like uh, in, in the hindu uh, system for example we have uh, uh, the individual consciousness and the cosmic consciousness right yeah, which yeah, we, yeah. we call brahman and even brahman as we know has two modes of manifestation, the uh, the Nirguna Brahman, right? The mm. Brahman which has no qualities whatsoever, and yeah. the one with qualities. So these are, uh, and we need the Brahman with qualities if we need to pray, for example. It yeah. is very difficult yeah. unless you are a mystic, and it's not impossible. Mystics do meditate on Nirguna Brahman, they say. So that is a, a, what I would call a metaphysical approach to it. Yeah. Now, quantum physics, at best, it may try to explain, but it will not give, uh, it is not within its uh, capacity to oh. uh, give value judgments, you see, oh. that in the idea of uh, the quantum physics could uh, or, or the idea that all the all the purushas are identical 
and can be merged with a single Supreme Purusha is not contradictory to quantum physics, but it will not recommend what we should do about it. And that's where religions and uh, uh, yeah. mysticism yeah. come in, in practical application. Th th thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, can I also ask you a kind of a related question, not so much yes. related to quantum physics, yeah. but sort of related to what you've just now said? Yeah. Um, the Western mind doesn't seem to accept what we call the, the consciousness, the fourth consciousness, the mystical state, um, where we talk about intuitive uh, experience or perception of uh, uh, Brahman or reality. And the Western mind stops with uh, the sattvic mind, let me put it that way. It doesn't want to go beyond that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the first thought I would have is, we are living in the 21st century. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? Up until the 19th century, mm. there was this demarcation between Eastern mind and Western mind. They're yeah. very, very different, very clear. During the 20th century, there has been an intermingling of ideas and worldviews and so on to the point that there are many in the West who have adopted, embraced and subscribed yeah. to what you and I used to describe as the Eastern mind. And yeah. there are many yeah. in the East who have completely switched over to or embraced what we would call the Western mind. So yeah. I yeah. am very uh, cautious about dividing the world uh, yeah. in terms yeah. of Eastern. But I agree with you that there are two kinds of approaches to the world. One, because of their origins, geographical origins, may mm. be called Eastern and the other Western. Yeah. That means, uh, and there I agree. Uh, and the individuals today, uh, what happens is for all of us, and that's where I like the Jain idea again, depend on the context. If you take your own personal life or anybody's, uh, most of the time, they are working on what we call the Western mind idea, mm -hmm. you see. But there are times, whether during meditation, prayer, or enjoying music or anything, they probably yeah. adopt the other kind. The secret, it seems to me, is to recognize that we are complex human beings, complex yeah. entities, yeah. which are yeah. capable, thanks to the creator, if you like, yeah. of getting, of, of benefiting from both kinds of minds. Yeah. And I therefore would suggest, and I have argued for this many times, but uh, with little success, because there is still the strong antagonism between the two schools of thought. There are people I know in the West who are completely against what we describe as a Western mind. So I 
personally don't think. I personally think uh, we are both uh, basically yeah. a mixture of both. As it used to be said that man, uh, meaning the human being, is a mixture of uh, God, uh, of the angel, and the beast. It used yeah. to be an expression once upon a time. Now, I don't think it's the angel and the beast. I think we are a mixture of yeah. both these. Yeah. And I think this is where the future is to recognize the value, intrinsic yeah. worth of both, you yeah. say, and not think one is the right or the better way. It's not better or worse. Both yeah. are equally. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I, I totally agree with the, your non-binary approach that we, are, we have both the East and the West in us. De depends yeah. upon the degree. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree with Thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for yeah. enlightening me with your thoughts. Thank you, Professor Sharda, for your question. Anybody else would like to ask or would like to speak with Professor Ram? Okay, sir, I think uh, we can conclude our session. Thank you so much for your time and wisdom that you shared with us. Wow. And uh, like, I, like I was saying, you, this was a really complex topic, but you simplified for us and made it more, very interesting with your slides, which was really, really very helpful to understand the complex topics. And uh, as we share on YouTube, I, we hope we'll get, we'll get more people interested in this topic like also like you said it gets some people get overboard uh, right they just say that oh everything in physics is already there in Upanishads. that extremism should not should not happen so you cautioned us also that don't go too excited don't get too excited be very careful in what you say and yeah so that was i think very well taken and uh, with that i guess uh, if anybody else would like to speak if not then i would like to say thank you so much and well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All the best. We'll be in touch. I'll talk to you. Yes, of course. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Uh, Professor Jain, should I end the meeting? Yes. yes, I think we're done. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay.